Chapter thirty five of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter thirty five. Expiation. There's naught so finely spun but it cometh to the sun. Mr. Thornton sat on and on. He felt that his company gave pleasure to Mr. Hale and was touched by the half-spoken wishful entreaty that he would remain a little longer, the plaintive, don't go yet, which his poor friend put forth from time to time. He wondered Margaret did not return, but it was with no view of seeing her that he lingered. For the hour, and in the presence of one who was so thoroughly feeling the nothingness of earth, he was reasonable and self-controlled. He was deeply interested in all her father said. Of death, and of the heavy lull, and of the brain that has grown dull. It was curious how the presence of Mr. Thornton had power over Mr. Hale to make him unlock the secret thoughts which he kept shut up even from Margaret. Whether it was that her sympathy would be so keen, and show itself in so lively a manner, that he was afraid of the reaction upon himself, or whether it was that to his speculative mind all kinds of doubts presented themselves at such a time, pleading and crying aloud to be resolved into certainties, and that he knew she would have shrunk from the expression of any such doubts, nay, from him himself as capable of conceiving them, whatever was the reason, he could unburden himself better to Mr. Thornton than to her, of all the thoughts and fancies and fears that had been frost-bound in his brain till now. Mr. Thornton said very little, but every sentence he uttered added to Mr. Hale's reliance and regard for him. Was it that he paused in the expression of some remembered agony? Mr. Thornton's two or three words would complete the sentence, and show how deeply its meaning was entered into. Was it a doubt, a fear, a wandering uncertainty seeking rest, but finding none? So tear-blinded were its eyes. Mr. Thornton, instead of being shocked, seemed to have passed through that very stage of thought himself, and could suggest where the exact ray of light was to be found, which should make the dark places plain. Man of action as he was, busy in the world's great battle, there was a deeper religion binding him to God in his heart, in spite of his strong willfulness, through all his mistakes, than Mr. Hale had ever dreamed. They never spoke of such things again, as it happened but this one conversation made them peculiar people to each other, knit them together, in a way which no loose indiscriminate talking about sacred things can ever accomplish. When all are admitted, how can there be a holy of holies? And all this while Margaret lay as still and white as death on the study floor. She had sunk under her burden. It had been heavy in weight and long carried, and she had been very meek and patient, till all at once her faith had given way, and she had groped in vain for help. There was a pitiful contraction of suffering upon her beautiful brows, although there was no other sign of consciousness remaining. The mouth, a little while ago, so sullenly projected in defiance, was relaxed and livid. Epoche de la sua labia si mova, uno spirito suave e pien di amora dicendo all'anima, sospira. The first symptom of returning life was a quivering about the lips, a little mute soundless attempt at speech, but the eyes were still closed. 
and the quivering sank into stillness. Then, feebly leaning on her arms for an instant to steady herself, Margaret gathered herself up and rose. Her comb had fallen out of her hair, and with an intuitive desire to efface the traces of weakness and bring herself into order again, she sought for it, although from time to time, in course of the search, she had to sit down and recover strength. Her head drooped forwards, her hands meekly laid one upon the other. She tried to recall the force of her temptation, by endeavouring to remember the details which had thrown her into such deadly fright, but she could not. She only understood two facts, that Frederick had been in danger of being pursued and detected in London, as not only guilty of manslaughter, but as the more unpardonable leader of the mutiny, and that she had lied to save him. There was one comfort. Her lie had saved him, if only by gaining some additional time. If the inspector came again to-morrow, after she had received the letter she longed for to assure her of her brother's safety, she would brave shame, and stand in her bitter penance. She, the lofty Margaret, acknowledging before a crowded justice-room, if need were, that she had been as a dog, and done this thing. But if he came before she heard from Frederick, if he returned as he had half-threatened in a few hours, why, she would tell that lie again, though how the words would come out, after all this terrible pause for reflection and self-reproach, without betraying her falsehood, she did not know, she could not tell, but her repetition of it would gain time, time for Frederick. She was roused by Dixon's entrance into the room. She had just been letting out Mr. Thornton. He had hardly gone ten steps in the street before a passing omnibus stopped close by him, and a man got down and came up to him, touching his hat as he did so. It was the police inspector. Mr. Thornton had obtained for him his first situation in the police, and had heard from time to time of the progress of his protégé, but they had not often met, and at first Mr. Thornton did not remember him. "'My name is Watson. George Watson, sir. That you got—' "'Ah, yes, I recollect. Why, you are getting on famously, I hear.' "'Yes, sir. I ought to thank you, sir. But it is on a little matter of business I made so bold as to speak to you now. I believe you were the magistrate who attended to take down the deposition of a poor man who died in the infirmary last night.' "'Yes,' replied Mr. Thornton. "'I went and heard some kind of rambling statement, which the clerk said was of no great use. I'm afraid he was but a drunken fellow.' though there is no doubt he came to his death by violence at last. One of my mother's servants was engaged to him, I believe, and she is in great distress to-day. What about him? Why, sir, his death is oddly mixed up with somebody in the house I saw you coming out of just now. It was a Mr. Hale's, I believe. Yes, said Mr. Thornton, turning sharp round and looking into the inspector's face with sudden interest. What about it? Why, sir, it seems to me that I have got a pretty distinct chain of evidence, inculpating a gentleman who was walking with Miss Hale that night at the outward station, as the man who struck, or pushed Leonard's off the platform, and so caused his death. But the young lady denies that she was there at the time. Miss Hale denies she was there, repeated Mr. Thornton, in an altered voice. Tell me, what evening was it? What time? "'About six o'clock, on the evening of Thursday, the twenty-sixth. 
They walked on, side by side, in silence for a minute or two. The inspector was the first to speak. "'You see, sir, there is like to be a coroner's inquest, and I've got a young man who is pretty positive, at least he was at first. Since he has heard of the young lady's denial, he says he should not like to swear. But still he's pretty positive that he saw Miss Hale at the station, walking about with a gentleman, not five minutes before the time, when one of the porters saw a scuffle, which he set down to some of Leonard's impudence, but which led to the fall which caused his death. And seeing you come out of the very house, sir, I thought I might make bold to ask if— You see, it's always awkward having to do with cases of disputed identity, and one doesn't like to doubt the word of a respectable young woman unless one has strong proof to the contrary. And she denied having been at the station that evening, repeated Mr. Thornton, in a low, brooding tone. Yes, sir, twice over, as distinct as could be. I told her I should call again, but seeing you just as I was on my way back from questioning the young man who said it was her, I thought I would ask your advice, both as the magistrate who saw Leonard's on his deathbed, and as the gentleman who got me my berth in the force. You were quite right, said Mr. Thornton. Don't take any steps till you have seen me again. The young lady will expect me to call, from what I said. I only want to delay you an hour. It's now three. Come to my warehouse at four. Very well, sir. And they parted company. Mr. Thornton hurried to his warehouse, and sternly forbidding his clerks to allow anyone to interrupt him, he went his way to his own private room and locked the door. Then he indulged himself in the torture of thinking it all over, and realizing every detail. How could he have lulled himself into the unsuspicious calm in which her tearful image had mirrored itself not two hours before, till he had weakly pitied her and yearned toward her, and forgotten the savage, distrustful jealousy with which the sight of her, and that unknown to him, at such an hour, in such a place, had inspired him? How could one so pure have stooped from her decorous and noble manner of bearing? But was it decorous? Was it? He hated himself for the idea that forced itself upon him, just for an instant, no more. And yet, while it was present, thrilled him with its old potency of attraction towards her image. And then this falsehood! How terrible must be some dread of shame to be revealed, for, after all, the provocation given by a man such as Leonard's was, when excited by drinking, might, in all probability, be more than enough to justify any one who came forward to state the circumstances openly and without reserve. How creeping and deadly that fear, which could bow down the truthful Margaret to falsehood! He could almost pity her. What would be the end of it? She could not have considered all she was entering upon. If there was an inquest, and the young man came forward— Suddenly he started up. There should be no inquest. He would save Margaret. He would take the responsibility of preventing the inquest, the issue of which, from the uncertainty of the medical testimony, which he had vaguely heard the night before, from the surgeon in attendance, could be but doubtful. The doctors had discovered an internal disease far advanced, and sure to prove fatal. They had stated that death might have been accelerated by the fall, or by the subsequent drinking and exposure to cold. If he had but known how Margaret would have become involved in the affair, 
if he had but foreseen that she would have stained her whiteness by a falsehood, he could have saved her by a word. For the question, of inquest or no inquest, had hung trembling in the balance only the night before. Miss Hale might love another, was indifferent and contemptuous to him, but he would yet do her faithful acts of service of which she should never know. He might despise her, but the woman whom he had once loved should be kept from shame, and shame it would be to pledge herself to a lie in a public court, or otherwise to stand and acknowledge her reason for desiring darkness rather than light. Very grey and stern did Mr. Thornton look, as he passed out through his wondering clerks. He was away about half an hour, and scarcely less stern did he look when he returned, although his errand had been successful. He wrote two lines on a slip of paper, put it in an envelope, and sealed it up. This he gave to one of the clerks, saying, "'I appointed Watson, he who was a packer in the warehouse, and who went into the police, to call on me at four o'clock. I have just met with a gentleman from Liverpool who wishes to see me before he leaves town. Take care to give this note to Watson when he calls.' The note contained these words. "'There will be no inquest. Medical evidence not sufficient to justify it. Take no further steps. I have not seen the coroner.' but I will take the responsibility. Well, thought Watson, it relieves me from an awkward job. None of my witnesses seemed certain of anything except the young woman. She was clear and distinct enough. The porter at the railroad had seen a scuffle, or, when he found it was likely to bring him in as a witness, that it might not have been a scuffle, only a little larking, and Leonard's might have jumped off the platform himself. He would not stick firm to anything. And Jennings, the grocer's shopman, well, he was not quite so bad, but I doubt if I could have got him up to an oath after he heard that Miss Hale flatly denied it. It would have been a troublesome job, and no satisfaction, and now I must go and tell them they won't be wanted. He accordingly presented himself again at Mr. Hale's that evening. Her father and Dixon would fain have persuaded Margaret to go to bed, but they, neither of them, knew the reason for her low continued refusals to do so. Dixon had learnt part of the truth, but only part. Margaret would not tell any human being of what she had said, and she did not reveal the fatal termination to Leonard's fall from the platform. So Dixon's curiosity combined with her allegiance to urge Margaret to go to rest, which her appearance, as she lay on the sofa, showed but too clearly that she required. She did not speak except when spoken to, she tried to smile back in reply to her father's anxious looks and words of tender inquiry, but, instead of a smile, the wan lips resolved themselves into a sigh. He was so miserably uneasy that, at last, she consented to go into her own room and prepare for going to bed. She was indeed inclined to give up the idea that the inspector would call again that night, as it was already past nine o'clock. She stood by her father, holding on to the back of the chair. "'You will go up to bed soon, Papa, won't you? Don't sit up alone.' What his answer was she did not hear. The words were lost in the far smaller point of sound that magnified itself to her fears and filled her brain. There was a low ring at the doorbell. She kissed her father and glided downstairs with a rapidity of motion of which no one would have thought her capable who had seen her the minute before. She put aside Dixon. "'Don't come. I will open the door.' I know it is him. I can. I must manage it all myself. 
"'As you please, miss,' said Dixon testily. But in a moment afterwards she added, "'But you are not fit for it. You are more dead than alive.' "'Am I?' said Margaret, turning round and showing her eyes all aglow with strange fire, her cheeks flushed, though her lips were baked and livid still. She opened the door to the inspector, and preceded him into the study. She placed the candle on the table and snuffed it carefully, before she turned round to face him. "'You are late,' said she. "'Well?' She held her breath for the answer. "'I am sorry to have given any unnecessary trouble, ma'am, for, after all, they have given up all thoughts of holding an inquest. I have had other work to do and other people to see, or I should have been here before now.' "'Then it is ended,' said Margaret. "'There is to be no further inquiry.' "'I believe I've got Mr. Thornton's note about me,' said the inspector, fumbling in his pocket-book. "'Mr. Thornton's?' said Margaret. "'Yes, he's a magistrate. Ah, here it is.' She could not see to read it. No, not although she was close to the candle. The words swam before her. But she held it in her hand, and looked at it as if she were intently studying it. "'I'm sure, ma'am, it's a great weight off my mind, for the evidence was so uncertain, you see, that the man had received any blow at all, and if any question of identity came in, it so complicated the case, as I told Mr. Thornton.' "'Mr. Thornton,' said Margaret again, "'I met him this morning, just as he was coming out of this house, and, as he's an old friend of mine, besides being the magistrate who saw Leonard's last night, I made bold to tell him of my difficulty. Margaret sighed deeply. She did not want to hear any more. She was afraid alike of what she had heard, and of what she might hear. She wished that the man would go. She forced herself to speak. Thank you for calling. It is very late. I dare say it's past ten o'clock. Oh, here's the note, she continued, suddenly interpreting the meaning of the hand held out to receive it. He was putting it up when she said, "'I think it is a cramped, dazzling sort of writing. I could not read it. Will you just read it to me?' He read it aloud to her. "'Thank you. You told Mr. Thornton that I was not there?' "'Oh, of course, ma'am. I am sorry now that I acted upon information, which seems to have been so erroneous. At first the young man was so positive and now he says that he doubted all along, and hopes that his mistake won't have occasioned you such annoyance as to lose their shop your custom. Good night, ma'am. Good night. She rang the bell for Dixon to show him out. As Dixon returned up the passage, Margaret passed her swiftly. It's all right, said she, without looking at Dixon, and before the woman could follow her with further questions, she had sped upstairs and entered her bedchamber, and bolted the door. She threw herself, dressed as she was, upon her bed. She was much too exhausted to think. Half an hour or more elapsed before the cramped nature of her position, and the chilliness, supervening upon great fatigue, had the power to rouse her numbed faculties. Then she began to recall, to combine, to wonder. The first idea that presented itself to her was, that all this sickening alarm on Frederick's behalf was over. The strain was past. The next was a wish to remember every word of the inspectors which related to Mr. Thornton. When had he seen him? What had he said? What had Mr. Thornton done? What were the exact words of his note? And until she could recollect, 
even to the placing or omitting an article, the very expressions which he had used in the note, her mind refused to go on with its progress. But the next conviction she came to was clear enough. Mr. Thornton had seen her close to Outwood Station on the fatal Thursday night, and had been told of her denial that she was there. She stood as a liar in his eyes. She was a liar, but she had no thought of penitence before God. Nothing but chaos and night surrounded the one lurid fact that, in Mr. Thornton's eyes, she was disgraced. She cared not to think, even to herself, of how much of excuse she might plead. That had nothing to do with Mr. Thornton. She never dreamed that he, or any one else, could find cause for suspicion in what was so natural as her accompanying her brother. But what was really false and wrong was known to him, and he had a right to judge her. "'Oh, Frederick, Frederick!' she cried. "'What have I not sacrificed for you?' Even when she fell asleep her thoughts were compelled to travel the same circle, only with exaggerated and monstrous circumstances of pain. When she awoke a new idea flashed upon her with all the brightness of the morning. Mr. Thornton had learnt her falsehood before he went to the coroner. That suggested the thought that he had possibly been influenced so to do with a view of sparing her the repetition of her denial. But she pushed this notion on one side with the sick wilfulness of a child. If it were so, she felt no gratitude to him, as it only showed her how keenly he must have seen that she was disgraced already before he took such unwanted pains to spare her any further trial of truthfulness which had already failed so signally. She would have gone through the whole, she would have perjured herself to save Frederick, rather, far rather, than Mr. Thornton should have had the knowledge that prompted him to interfere to save her. What ill fate brought him in contact with the inspector? What made him to be the very magistrate sent for to receive Leonard's deposition? What had Leonard said? How much of it was intelligible to Mr. Thornton, who might already, for aught she knew, be aware of the old accusation against Frederick, through their mutual friend, Mr. Bell. If so, he had striven to save the son, who came in defiance of the law to attend his mother's deathbed, and under this idea she could feel grateful. Not yet, if ever she should, if his interference had been prompted by contempt. Oh, had any one such just cause to feel contempt for her, Mr. Thornton, above all people, on whom she had looked down from her imaginary heights till now. She suddenly found herself at his feet, and was strangely distressed at her fall. She shrank from following out the premises to their conclusion, and so acknowledging to herself how much she valued his respect and good opinion. Whenever this idea presented itself to her at the end of a long avenue of thoughts, she turned away from following that path she would not believe in it. It was later than she fancied, for in the agitation of the previous night she had forgotten to wind up her watch, and Mr. Hale had given especial orders that she was not to be disturbed by the usual awakening. By and by the door opened cautiously, and Dixon put her head in. Perceiving that Margaret was awake, she came forwards with a letter. "'Here's something to do you good, miss. A letter from Master Frederick.' "'Thank you, Dixon.' how late it is. She spoke very languidly, and suffered Dixon to lay it on the counterpane before her, without putting out a hand to take it. You want your breakfast, I'm sure. 
I will bring it up to you in a minute. Master has got the tray all ready, I know. Margaret did not reply. She let her go. She felt that she must be alone before she could open that letter. She opened it at last. The first thing that caught her eye was the date two days earlier than she received it. He had then written when he had promised, and their alarm might have been spared. But she would read the letter and see. It was hasty enough, but perfectly satisfactory. He had seen Henry Lennox, who knew enough of the case to shake his head over it, in the first instance, and to tell him he had done a very daring thing in returning to England, with such an accusation, backed by such powerful influence, hanging over him. But when they had come to talk it over, Mr. Lennox had acknowledged that there might be some chance of his acquittal, if he could but prove his statements by credible witnesses, that in such case it might be worth while to stand his trial, otherwise it would be a great risk. He would examine, he would take every pains. "'It struck me,' said Frederick, "'that your introduction, little sister of mine, went a long way. Is it so? He made many inquiries, I can assure you. He seemed a sharp, intelligent fellow, and in good practice, too, to judge from the signs of business and the number of clerks about him. But these may be only lawyers' dodges. I have just caught a packet on the point of sailing. I am off in five minutes. I may have to come back to England again about this business, so keep my visit secret. I shall send my father some rare old sherry, such as you cannot buy in England, such stuff as I have got in the bottle before me. He needs something of the kind. My dear love to him. God bless him, I am sure. Here's my cab. P.S. What an escape that was. Take care you don't breathe of my having been, not even to the Shaws. Margaret turned to the envelope. It was marked, Too Late. The letter had probably been trusted to some careless waiter who had forgotten to post it. Oh, what slight cobwebs of chances stand between us and temptation! Frederick had been safe, and out of England twenty, nay, thirty hours ago, and it was only about seventeen hours since she had told a falsehood to baffle pursuit, which even then would have been in vain. How faithless she had been! Where now was her proud motto? Face a advienne quoi pourra? If she had but dared to bravely tell the truth as regarded herself, defying them to find out what she refused to tell concerning another, how light of heart she would now have felt, not humbled before God, as having failed in trust towards him, not degraded and abased in Mr. Thornton's sight. She caught herself up at this with a miserable tremor. Here was she classing his low opinion of her alongside with the displeasure of God. How was it that he haunted her imagination so persistently? What could it be? Why did she care for what he thought, in spite of all her pride, and in spite of herself? She believed that she could have borne the sense of almighty displeasure, because he knew all, and could read her penitence, and hear her cries for help in time to come. But Mr. Thornton, why did she tremble and hide her face in the pillow? What strong feeling had overtaken her at last? She sprang out of bed and prayed long and earnestly. It soothed and comforted her so to open her heart. But as soon as she reviewed her position, she found the sting was still there, that she was not good enough, nor pure enough to be indifferent to the lowered opinion of a fellow creature, that the thought of how he must be looking upon her with contempt stood between her and her sense of wrongdoing. She took her letter in to her father as soon as she was dressed. 
There was so slight an allusion to their alarm at the railroad station that Mr. Hale passed over it without paying any attention to it. Indeed, beyond the mere fact of Frederick having sailed undiscovered and unsuspected, he did not gather much from the letter at the time. He was so uneasy about Margaret's pallid looks. She seemed continually on the point of weeping. "'You are sadly overdone, Margaret. It is no wonder. But you must let me nurse you now.' He made her lie down on the sofa, and went for a shawl to cover her with. His tenderness released her tears, and she cried bitterly. "'Poor child! Poor child!' said he, looking fondly at her, as she lay with her face to the wall, shaking with her sobs. After a while they ceased, and she began to wonder whether she durst give herself the relief of telling her father all her trouble. But there were more reasons against it than for it. The only one for it was the relief to herself, and against it was the thought that it would add materially to her father's nervousness, if it were indeed necessary for Frederick to come to England again, that he would dwell on the circumstance of his son having caused the death of a man, however unwittingly and unwillingly, that this knowledge would perpetually recur to trouble him, in various shapes of exaggeration and distortion from the simple truth. And about her own great fault, he would be distressed beyond measure at her want of courage and faith, yet perpetually troubled to make excuses for her. Formerly Margaret would have come to him as a priest as well as father, to tell him of her temptation and her sin. But latterly they had not spoken much on such subjects, and she knew not how, in his change of opinions, he would reply if the depth of her soul called unto his. No, she would keep her secret, and bear the burden alone. Alone she would go before God, and cry for his absolution. Alone she would endure her disgraced position in the opinion of Mr. Thornton. She was unspeakably touched by the tender efforts of her father to think of cheerful subjects on which to talk, and so to take her thoughts away from dwelling on all that had happened of late. It was some months since he had been so talkative as he was this day. He would not let her sit up, and offended Dixon desperately by insisting on waiting upon her himself. At last she smiled, a poor, weak little smile, but it gave him the truest pleasure. It seems strange to think that what gives us most hope for the future should be called Dolores, said Margaret. The remark was more in character with her father than with her usual self, but today they seem to have changed natures. Her mother was a Spaniard, I believe. That accounts for her religion. Her father was a stiff Presbyterian when I knew him, but it is a very soft and pretty name. How young she is! Younger by fourteen months than I am! just the age that Edith was when she was engaged to Captain Lennox. Papa, we will go and see them in Spain. He shook his head, but he said, If you wish it, Margaret, only let us come back here. It would seem unfair, unkind to your mother, who always, I am afraid, disliked Milton so much, if we left it, now she is lying here, and cannot go with us. No, dear, you shall go and see them, and bring me back a report of my Spanish daughter. No, Papa, I won't go without you. Who is to take care of you when I am gone? I should like to know which of us is taking care of the other. But if you went, I should persuade Mr. Thornton to let me give him double lessons. We would work up the classics famously, 
that would be a perpetual interest. You might go on and see Edith at Corfu, if you liked. Margaret did not speak all at once. Then she said rather gravely, Thank you, Papa, but I don't want to go. We will hope that Mr. Lennox will manage so well that Frederick may bring Dolores to see us when they are married. And as for Edith, the regiment won't remain much longer in Corfu. Perhaps we shall see both of them here before another year is out. Mr. Hale's cheerful subjects had come to an end. Some painful recollection had stolen across his mind and driven him into silence. By and by, Margaret said, Papa, did you see Nicholas Higgins at the funeral? He was there, and Mary, too. Poor fellow, it was his way of showing sympathy. He has a good warm heart under his bluff, abrupt ways. I am sure of it, replied Mr. Hale. I saw it all along, even while you tried to persuade me that he was all sorts of bad things. We will go and see them to-morrow, if you are strong enough to walk so far. Oh, yes, I want to see them. We did not pay Mary, or, rather, she refused to take it, Dixon says. We will go so as to catch him just after his dinner, and before he goes to his work. Towards evening, Mr. Hale said, I half expected Mr. Thornton would have called. He spoke of a book yesterday which he had, and which I wanted to see. He said he would try and bring it to-day. Margaret sighed. She knew he would not come. He would be too delicate to run the chance of meeting her, while her shame must be so fresh in his memory. The very mention of his name renewed her trouble, and produced a relapse into the feelings of depressed, preoccupied exhaustion. She gave way to listless languor. Suddenly it struck her that this was a strange manner to show her patience, or to reward her father for his watchful care of her all through the day. She sat up and offered to read aloud. His eyes were failing, and he gladly accepted her proposal. She read well. She gave the due emphasis. But had anyone asked her, when she had ended, the meaning of what she had been reading, she could not have told. She was smitten with the feeling of ingratitude to Mr. Thornton, inasmuch as, in the morning she had refused to accept the kindness he had shown her in making further inquiry from the medical men, so as to obviate any inquest being held. Oh, she was grateful. She had been cowardly and false, and had shown her cowardliness and falsehood in action that could not be recalled, but she was not ungrateful. It sent a glow to her heart, to know how she could feel towards one who had reason to despise her. His cause for contempt was so just that she should have respected him less if she had thought he did not feel contempt. It was a pleasure to feel how thoroughly she respected him. He could not prevent her doing that. It was the one comfort in all this misery. Late in the evening the expected book arrived. With Mr. Thornton's kind regards, and wishes to know how Mr. Hale is. Say that I am much better, Dixon, but that Miss Hale— no, Papa, said Margaret eagerly. Don't say anything about me. He does not ask. My dear child, how you are shivering, said her father a few minutes afterwards. You must go to bed directly. You have turned quite pale. Margaret did not refuse to go, though she was loath to leave her father alone. She needed the relief of solitude after a day of busy thinking, and busier repenting. But she seemed much as usual the next day. The lingering gravity and sadness, and the occasional absence of mind, 
were not unnatural symptoms in the early days of grief and almost in proportion to her re-establishment in health was her father's relapse into his abstracted musing upon the wife he had lost and the past era in his life that was closed to him for ever end of chapter thirty five Chapter thirty six of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter thirty six. Union not always strength. The steps of the bearers, heavy and slow, the sobs of the mourners, deep and low. Shelley. At the time arranged the previous day, they set out on their walk to see Nicholas Higgins and his daughter. They both were reminded of their recent loss by a strange kind of shyness in their new habiliments, and the fact that it was the first time, for many weeks, that they had deliberately gone out together. They drew very close to each other in unspoken sympathy. Nicholas was sitting by the fireside in his accustomed corner, but he had not his accustomed pipe. He was leaning his head upon his hand, his arm resting on his knee. He did not get up when he saw them though Margaret could read the welcome in his eyes. "'Sit ye down, sit ye down. Fire's willy out,' said he, giving it a vigorous poke, as if to turn attention away from himself. He was rather disorderly, to be sure, with a black unshaven beard of several days' growth, making his pale face look yet paler, and a jacket which would have been all the better for patching. "'We thought we should have a good chance of finding you, just after dinner-time,' said Margaret we have had our sorrow too since we saw you said mr hale ay ay sorrow is more plentiful than dinners just now i reckon my dinner hour stretches all o'er the day you're pretty sure of finding me are you out of work asked margaret ay he replied shortly then after a moment's silence he added looking up for the first time i'm not wanton brass don't you think it bess poor lass had a little stock under her pillow, ready to slip into my hand, last moment, and Mary is fustian cutting. But I'm out o' work, eh, the same. We owe Mary some money, said Mr. Hale, before Margaret's sharp pressure on his arm could arrest the words. If who takes it, I'll turn her out o' doors. I'll bide inside these four walls, and she'll bide out, that's eh. But we owe her many thanks for a kind service began mr hale again i ne'er thanked your daughter there for her deeds o love to my poor wench i ne'er could find the words i'll have to begin and try now if yo start making an ado about what little mary could sarve you is it because of the strike you're out of work asked margaret gently strikes ended it's o'er for this time but i'm out of work because i ne'er asked for it and i ne'er asked for it because good words is scarce and bad words is plentiful he was in a mood to take a surly pleasure in giving answers that were like riddles but margaret saw that he would like to be asked for the explanation and good words are asking for work i reckon them's almost the best words that men can say gimme work means and i'll do it like a man them's good words and bad words are refusing you work when you ask for it Aye. 
bad words is saying aha my fine chap you've been true to your order and i'll be true to mine you did the best you could for them as wanted help that's your way of being true to your kind and i'll be true to mine you've been a poor fool as knowed no better nor be a true faithful fool so go and be damned to you there's no work for you here them's bad words i'm not a fool and if i was forgot to hae taught me how to be wise after their fashion i could map and hae learned if any one had tried to teach me would it not be worth while said mr hale to ask your old master if he would take you back again it might be a poor chance but it would be a chance he looked up again with a sharp glance at the questioner and then tittered a low and bitter laugh maister if it's no offence i'll ask you a question or two in my turn you're quite welcome said mr hale i reckon yon some way of earning your bread folks seldom lives e milton just for pleasure if they can live anywhere else you are quite right i have some independent property but my intention in settling in milton was to become a private tutor to teach folk well i reckon they pay you for teaching them don't they yes replied mr hale smiling i teach in order to get paid and them that pays you don't they tell you what to do or what not to do wi the money they give you in just payment for your pains in fair exchange like no to be sure not they do not say you may have a brother or a friend as dear as a brother who wants this here brass for a purpose both you and he think is right but your men promise not to give it to him your men say a good use as you think to put your money to but we don't think it good and so if you spend it at that ends we'll leave off dealing with you they do not say that don't they no to be sure not would you stand for it if they did it would be some very hard pressure that would make me even think of submitting to such dictation there's not the pressure on all the broad earth that would make me said nicholas higgins now you've got it you've hit the bull's eye hampers that's where i worked makes their men pledge themselves they'll not give a penny to help the union or keep turnouts from clemen they may pledge and make pledge continued he scornfully they nubbit make liars and hypocrites and that's a lesson to my mind to make a men's hearts so hard that they'll not do a kindness to them as needs it or help on the right and just cause though it goes again the strong hand but i'll never forswear myself for a the work the king could gi me i'm a member o the union and i think it's the only thing to do the workmen any good and i've been a turnout and known what it were to clem so if i get a shilling sixpence shall go to them if they ax it from me consequence is i dunnot see where i'm to get a shilling is that rule about not contributing to the union in force at all the mills asked margaret i cannot say it's a new regulation tower and i reckon they'll find that they cannot stick to it but it's in force now by and by they'll find out tyrants make liars there was a little pause margaret was hesitating whether she should say what was in her mind she was unwilling to irritate one who was already gloomy and despondent enough at last it came out but in her soft tones and with her reluctant manner showing that she was unwilling to say anything unpleasant it did not seem to annoy higgins only to perplex him 
Do you remember poor Boucher saying that the Union was a tyrant? I think he said it was the worst tyrant of all. And I remember at the time I agreed with him. It was a long time before he spoke. He was resting his head on his two hands, and looking down into the fire, so she could not read the expression on his face. I'll not deny but what the Union finds it necessary to force a man into his own good. I'll speak truth. A man leads a dree life who's not e the Union. But once e the Union, his interests are taken care on better nor he could do it for himself, or by himself, for that matter. It's the only way working men can get their rights, by all joining together. More the members, more chance for each one separate man having justice done him. Government takes care of fools and madmen, and if any man is inclined to do hisself or his neighbour a hurt, it puts a bit of check on him, whether he likes it or no. That's all we do e the Union. We can't clap folks into prison, but we can make a man's life so heavy to be born that he's obliged to come in and be wise and helpful in spite of himself. Boucher were a fool all along, and ne'er a worse fool than at the last. He did you harm, asked Margaret. Ay, that he did. We had public opinion on our side, till he and his sort began riotin' and breakin' laws. It were all o'er with the strike then. Then would it not have been far better to have left him alone, and not forced him to join the Union? He did you no good, and you drove him mad. "'Margaret,' said her father, in a low and warning tone, for he saw the cloud gathering on Higgins's face. "'I like her,' said Higgins, suddenly. "'Who speaks plain out what's on her mind? Who doesn't comprehend the Union for all that? It's a great power. It's our only power. I hear read a bit of poetry about a plough going o'er a daisy, as made tears come into my eyes, afore I'd other cause for crying.' But the chap ne'er stopped driving the plough, I's warrant, for all he were pitiful about the daisy. He'd too much mother-wit for that. The union's the plough, making ready the land for harvest time. Such as Boucher. T'would be setting him up too much to liken him to a daisy. He's liker a weed lounging over the ground. Mun just make up their mind to be put o' the way. I'm sore vexed with him just now. So mappen, I dunnot speak him fair. I could go o'er him with a plough myself, with a the pleasure in life. Why, what has he been doing? Anything fresh? Ay, to be sure. He's ne'er out of mischief, that man. First of a, he must go raging like a mad fool, and kick up yon riot. Then he'd go into hiding, where he'd a been yet, if Thornton had followed him out as I'd hoped he would a done. But Thornton, having got his own purpose, didn't care to go on with the prosecution of the riot. So Boucher slunk back again to his house. He ne'er showed himself abroad for a day or two. He had that grace. And then, where do you think he went? Why, to Hampers. Damn him! He went with his mealy-mouthed face that turns me sick to look at, a-askin' for work, though he knowed well enough the new rule, a-pledgin' themselves to get naught to the unions, not to help the starving turnout. Why, he'd a clemmed to death, if the Union had na helped him in his pinch. There he went, awesome to promise aught, and pledge himself to aught, to tell a he knowed on our proceedings, the good-for-nothing Judas. But I'll say this for Hamper, and thank him for it at my dying day. 
he drove Boucher away, and would nay listen to him, ne'er a word, though folks standing by, says the traitor cried like a babby. Oh, how shocking, how pitiful, exclaimed Margaret. Higgins, I don't know you to-day. Don't you see how you've made Boucher what he is, by driving him into the Union against his will, without his heart going with it? You have made him what he is. Made him what he was. What was he? Gathering, gathering along the narrow street, came a hollowed, measured sound, now forcing itself on their attention. Many voices were hushed and low. Many steps were heard not moving onwards, at least not with any rapidity or steadiness of motion, but as if circling round one spot. Yes, there was one distinct, slow tramp of feet, which made itself a clear path through the air, and reached their ears. The measured, laboured walk of men carrying a heavy burden. They were all drawn towards the house-door by some irresistible impulse, impelled thither, not by a poor curiosity, but as if by some solemn blast. Six men walked in the middle of the road, three of them being policemen. They carried a door, taken off its hinges, upon their shoulders, on which lay some dead human creature, and from each side of the door there were constant droppings. All the street turned out to see, and, seeing, to accompany the procession, each one questioning the bears, who answered almost reluctantly at last, so often had they told the tale. "'We found him i' the brook by the field beyond there.' "'The brook? Why, there's not water enough to drown him.' "'He was a determined chap. He lay with his face downwards. He was sick enough o' livin'. Choose what cause he had for it.' Higgins crept up to Margaret's side, and said in a weak, piping kind of voice, "'It's not John Boucher. He'd hany spunk enough. Sure.' It's not John Boucher. Why, they are looking this way. Listen, I have a singing in my head, and I cannot hear. They put the door down carefully upon the stones, and all might see the poor drowned wretch, his glassy eyes, one half open, staring right upwards to the sky. Owing to the position in which he had been found lying, his face was swollen and discoloured besides. His skin was stained by the water in the brook which had been used for dyeing purposes. The fore part of his head was bald, but the hair grew thin and long behind, and every separate lock was a conduit for water. Through all these disfigurements Margaret recognized John Boucher. It seemed to her so sacrilegious to be peering into that poor, distorted, agonized face, that, by a flash of instinct, she went forwards and softly covered the dead man's countenance with her handkerchief. The eyes that saw her do this followed her, as she turned away from her pious office, and were thus led to the place where Nicholas Higgins stood, like one rooted to the spot. The men spoke together, and then one of them came up to Higgins, who would have fain shrunk back into his house. "'Higgins, thou knowed him. Thou men go tell the wife. Do it gently, man, but do it quick, for we cannot leave him here long.' "'I cannot go,' said Higgins. Do not ask me. I can efface her. Thou knowest her best, said the man. Ween done a deal in bringing him here. Thou take thy share. I cannot do it, said Higgins. 
I'm Willie Feld we see in him. We wasn't friends, and now he's dead. Well, if thou wunnet, thou wunnet. Someone mun, though. It's a dree task, but it's a chance every minute, as she doesn't hear it in some rougher way, nor a person going to make her let on by degrees, as it were. Papa, do you go, said Margaret in a low voice. If I could, if I had time to think of what I had better say, but all at once. Margaret saw that her father was indeed unable. He was trembling from head to foot. I will go, said she. Bless you, miss. It will be a kind act, for she's been a sickly sort of body, I hear, and a few hereabouts know much on her. Margaret knocked at the closed door, but there was such a noise, as of many little ill-ordered children, that she could hear no reply. Indeed, she doubted if she was heard, and as every moment of delay made her recoil from her task more and more, she opened the door and went in, shutting it after her, and even, unseen to the woman, fastening the bolt. Mrs. Boucher was sitting in a rocking-chair on the other side of the ill-read-up fireplace, it looked as if the house had been untouched for days by any effort at cleanliness. Margaret said something. She hardly knew what. Her throat and mouth were so dry, and the children's noise completely prevented her from being heard. She tried again. "'How are you, Mrs. Boucher? But very poorly, I'm afraid.' "'I've no chance of being well,' she said querulously. "'I'm left alone to manage these childer, and not for to give em for to keep em quiet.' John should they have left me, and me so poorly. How long is it since he went away? Four days sin. No one would give him work here, and he'd to go on tramp toward Greenfield, but he might have been back afore this, or sent me some word if he'd gotten work. He might— Oh, don't blame him, said Margaret. He felt it deeply, I'm sure. "'Will to hold thy din, and let me hear the lady speak,' addressing herself, in no very gentle voice, to a little urchin of about a year old. She apologetically continued to Margaret. "'He's always mitherin' for Daddy and Butty, and I have no butties to give him, and Daddy's away, and forgettin' us, eh, I think. He's his father's darling, he is,' said she, with a sudden turn of mood, and, dragging the child up to her knee, she began kissing it fondly. Margaret laid her hand on the woman's arm to arrest her attention. Their eyes met. "'Poor little fellow,' said Margaret slowly. "'He was his father's darling.' "'He is his father's darling,' said the woman, rising hastily, and standing face to face with Margaret. Neither of them spoke for a moment or two. Then Mrs. Boucher began in a low, growling tone, gathering in wildness as she went on. He is his father's darling, I say. Poor folk can love their children as well as rich. Why don't you speak? Why don't you stare at me? We are great pitiful eyes. Where's John? Weak as she was, she shook Margaret to force out an answer. Oh, my God, said she, understanding the meaning of that tearful look. She sank back into the chair. Margaret took up the child and put him into her arms. He loved him, said she. Aye, said the woman, shaking her head. He loved us, eh? We had someone to love us once. It's a long time ago. 
but when he were in life and with us he did love us he did he loved this bappy mappin the best on us but he loved me and i loved him though i was calling him five minutes agone are you sure he's dead said she trying to keep up if it's only that he's ill and like to die they may bring him round yet but i'm an ailing creature myself and i've been ailing this long time but he is dead he is drowned folks are brought round after they're dead drowned what was i thinking of to sit still when i should be stirring myself here whist thee child whist thee take this take aught to play with but don't cry while my heart's breaking oh where's my strength gone to oh john husband margaret saved her from falling by catching her in her arms she sat down in the rocking-chair and held the woman upon her knees her head lying on margaret's shoulder the other children clustered together in a fright began to understand the mystery of the scene but the ideas came slowly for their brains were dull and languid of perception they set up such a cry of despair as they guessed the truth that margaret knew not how to bear it johnny's cry was loudest of them all though he did not know why he cried poor little fellow the mother quivered as she lay in margaret's arms margaret heard a noise at the door open it open it quick she said to the eldest child it's bolted make no noise be very still oh papa let them go upstairs very softly and carefully and perhaps she will not hear them she has fainted that's all it was well for her poor creature said a woman following in the wake of the bearers of the dead but you're not fit to hold her stay i'll fetch a pillow and we'll let her down easy on the floor this helpful neighbor was a great relief to margaret she was evidently a stranger to the house a newcomer in the district indeed but she was so kind and thoughtful that margaret felt she was no longer needed and that it would be better perhaps to set an example of clearing the house which was filled with idle if sympathizing gazers she looked round for nicholas higgins he was not there she spoke to the woman who had taken the lead in placing mrs boucher on the floor can you give all these people a hint that they had better leave in quietness so that when she comes round she should only find one or two that she knows about her papa will you speak to the men and get them to go away she cannot breathe poor thing with this crowd about her margaret was kneeling down by mrs boucher and bathing her face with vinegar but in a few minutes she was surprised at the gush of fresh air she looked round and saw a smile pass between her father and the woman what is it she asked only our good friend here replied her father hit on a capital expedient for clearing the place i bid em be gone and each take a child with him and to mind that they were orphans and their mother a widow it was who could do most and the children are sure of a bellyful to-day and of kindness too does who know how he died no said margaret i could not tell her all at once who mun be told because of the inquest see who's coming round shall you or i do it or mappin your father would be best no you you said margaret they awaited her perfect recovery in silence then the neighbor woman sat down on the floor and took mrs boucher's head and shoulders on her lap neighbor said she your man's dead guess you how he died he were drowned 
said Mrs. Boucher, feebly, beginning to cry for the first time, at this rough probing of her sorrows. He were found drowned. He were coming home very hopeless, so aught on earth. He thought God could nay be harder than men, mappin not so hard, mappin as tender as a mother, mappin tenderer. I'm not saying he did right, I'm not saying he did wrong. All I say is, may neither me nor mine ever have his sore heart, or we may do like things. He has left me alone with Aidy's children, moaned the widow, less distressed at the manner of death than Margaret expected, but it was of a piece with her helpless character to feel his loss as principally affecting herself and her children. Not alone, said Mr. Hale, solemnly. Who is with you? Who will take up your cause? The widow opened her eyes wide, and looked at the new speaker, of whose presence she had not been aware till then. "'Who has promised to be a father to the fatherless?' continued he. "'But I've getten six children, sir, and the eldest not eight years of age. I'm not meaning for to doubt his power, sir, but it only needs a deal of trust.' And she began to cry afresh. "'Who'll be better able to talk to-morrow, sir?' said the neighbour. "'Best comfort now would be the feel of a child at her heart. I'm sorry they took the babby.' "'I'll go for it,' said Margaret and in a few minutes she returned, carrying Johnny, his face all smeared with eating, and his hands loaded with treasures in the shape of shells and bits of crystal, and the head of a plaster figure. She placed him in his mother's arms. "'There,' said the woman, "'now you go. They'll cry together, and comfort together, better nor any one but child can do. I'll stop with her as long as I'm needed, and if you'll come to-morrow, you can have a deal of wise talk with her that she's not up to to-day.' As Margaret and her father went slowly up the street, she paused at Higgins's closed door. "'Shall we go in?' asked her father. "'I was thinking of him, too.' They knocked. There was no answer, so they tried the door. It was bolted, but they thought they heard him moving within. "'Nicholas!' said Margaret. But there was no answer, and they might have gone away, believing the house to be empty, if there had not been some accidental fall." as of a book, within. "'Nicholas,' said Margaret, "'it is only us. Won't you let us come in?' "'No,' said he. "'I spoke as plain as I could, about using words, when I bolted the door. Let me be, this day.' Mr. Hale would have urged their desire, but Margaret placed her finger on her lips. "'I don't wonder at it,' said she. "'I myself long to be alone.' It seems the only thing to do one good after a day like this. End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 37 Looking South A spade, a rake, a hoe, a pickaxe, or a bill, a hook to reap, or a scythe to mow, a flail, or what ye will, and here's a ready hand to ply the needful tool, and skilled enough, by lessons rough, in labor's rugged school. Hood Higgins' door was locked the next day, when they went to pay their call on the widow Boucher, but they learnt this time from an officious neighbour that he was really from home. He had, however, 
been in to see mrs boucher before starting on his day's business whatever that was it was but an unsatisfactory visit to mrs boucher she considered herself an ill-used woman by her poor husband's suicide and there was quite germ of truth enough in this idea to make it a very difficult one to refute still it was unsatisfactory to see how completely her thoughts were turned upon herself and her own position and this selfishness extended even to her relations with her children whom she considered as encumbrances even in the very midst of her somewhat animal affection for them margaret tried to make acquaintances with one or two of them while her father strove to raise the widow's thoughts into some higher channel than that of mere helpless querulousness she found that the children were truer and simpler mourners than the widow daddy had been a kind daddy to them each could tell in their eager stammering way of some tenderness shown some indulgence granted by the lost father is yon thing upstairs really him it does not look like him i am feared on it and i never was feared a daddy margaret's heart bled to hear that the mother in her selfish requirement of sympathy had taken her children upstairs to see their disfigured father it was intermingling the coarseness of horror with the profoundness of natural grief she tried to turn their thoughts in some other direction on what they could do for her mother on what for this was a more efficacious way of putting it what father would have wished them to do margaret was more successful than mr hale in her efforts the children seeing their little duties lie in action close around them began to try each one to do something that she suggested towards redding up the slatternly room but her father set too high a standard and too abstract a view before the indolent invalid she could not rouse her torpid mind into any vivid imagination of what her husband's misery might have been before he had resorted to the last terrible step she could only look upon it as it affected herself she could not enter into the enduring mercy of the god who had not specially interposed to prevent the water from drowning her prostrate husband and although she was scarcely blaming her husband for having fallen into such dread despair and denying that he had any excuse for his last rash act she was inveterate in her abuse of all who could by any possibility be supposed to have driven him to such desperation the masters mr thornton in particular whose mill had been attacked by boucher and who after the warrant had been issued for his apprehension on the charge of rioting had caused it to be withdrawn the union of which higgins was the representative to the poor woman the children so numerous so hungry and so noisy all made up one great army of personal enemies whose fault it was that she was now a helpless widow margaret heard enough of this unreasonableness to dishearten her and when they came away she found it impossible to cheer her father it is the town life said she their nerves are quickened by the haste and bustle and speed of everything around them to say nothing of the confinement in these pent-up houses each of which itself is enough to induce depression and worry of spirits now in the country people live so much more out of doors even children and even in the winter but people must live in towns and in the country some get such stagnant habits of mind that they are almost fatalists yes i acknowledge that i suppose each mode of life produces its own trials and its own temptations the dweller in towns must find it as difficult to be patient and calm as the country-bred man must find it to be active and equal to unwanted emergencies both must find it hard to realize a future of any kind 
the one because the present is so living and hurrying and close around him the other because his life tempts him to revel in the mere sense of animal existence not knowing of and consequently not caring for any pungency of pleasure for the attainment of which he can plan and deny himself and look forward and thus both the necessity for engrossment and the stupid content in the present produce the same effects but this poor mrs boucher how little we can do for her and yet we dare not leave her without our efforts although they may seem so useless oh papa it's a hard world to live in so it is my child we feel it so just now at any rate but we have been very happy even in the midst of our sorrow what a pleasure frederick's visit was yes that it was said margaret brightly it was such a charming snatching forbidden thing but she suddenly stopped speaking she had spoiled the remembrance of frederick's visit to herself by her own cowardice of all faults the one she most despised in others was the want of bravery the meanness of heart which leads to untruth and here had she been guilty of it then came the thought of mr thornton's cognizance of her falsehood she wondered if she should have minded detection half so much from any one else she tried herself in imagination with her aunt shaw and edith with her father with captain and mr lennox with frederick the thought of the last knowing what she had done even in his own behalf was the most painful for the brother and sister were in the first flush of their mutual regard and love but even any fall in frederick's opinion was nothing to the shame the shrinking shame she felt at the thought of meeting mr thornton again and yet she longed to see him to get it over to understand where she stood in his opinion her cheeks burnt as she recollected how proudly she had implied an objection to trade in the early days of their acquaintance because it too often led to the deceit of passing off inferior for superior goods in the one branch of assuming credit for wealth and resources not possessed in the other she remembered mr thornton's look of calm disdain as in a few words he gave her to understand that in the great scheme of commerce all dishonorable ways of acting were sure to prove injurious in the long run and that testing such actions simply according to the poor standard of success there was folly and not wisdom in all such and every kind of deceit in trade as well as in other things she remembered she then strong in her own untempted truth asking him if he did not think that buying in the cheapest and selling in the dearest market proved some want of the transparent justice which is so intimately connected with the idea of truth and she had used the word chivalric and her father had corrected her with the higher word christian and so drawn the argument upon himself while she sat silent by with a slight feeling of contempt no more contempt for her no more talk about the chivalric henceforth she must feel humiliated and disgraced in his sight but when would she see him her heart leapt up in apprehension at every ring of the doorbell and yet when it fell down to calmness she felt strangely saddened and sick at heart at each disappointment it was very evident that her father expected to see him and was surprised that he did not come the truth was that there were points in their conversation the other night on which they had no time then to enlarge but it had been understood that if possible on the succeeding evening if not then 
at least the very first evening that mr thornton could command they should meet for further discussion mr hale had looked forward to this meeting ever since they had parted but he had not yet resumed the instruction to his pupils which he had relinquished at the commencement of his wife's more serious illness so he had fewer occupations than usual and the great interest of the last day or so boucher's suicide had driven him back with more eagerness than ever upon his speculations he was restless all evening he kept saying i quite expected to have seen mr thornton i think the messenger who brought the book last night must have had some note and forgot to deliver it do you think there has been any message left to-day i will go and inquire papa said margaret after the changes on these sentences had been rung once or twice stay there is a ring she sat down instantly and bent her head attentively over her work she heard a step on the stairs but it was only one and she knew it was dixon's she lifted up her head and sighed and believed she felt glad it's that higgins sir he wants to see you or else miss hale or it might be miss hale first and then you sir for he's in a strange kind of way he had better come up here dixon and then he can see us both and choose which he likes for his listener oh very well sir i've no wish to hear what he's got to say i'm sure only if you could see his shoes i'm sure you'd say the kitchen was the fitter place he can wipe them i suppose said mr hale so dixon flung off to bid him walk upstairs she was a little mollified however when he looked at his feet with a hesitating air and then sitting down on the bottom stair he took off the offending shoes and without a word walked upstairs sarvant sir he said slicking his hair down when he came into the room if who'll excuse me looking at margaret for being in my stockings i's been trampin a day and streets is none of the cleanest margaret thought that fatigue might account for the change in his manner for he was unusually quiet and subdued and he had evidently some difficulty in saying what he came to say mr hale's ever ready sympathy with anything of shyness or hesitation or want of self-possession made him come to his aid we shall have tea up directly and then you'll take a cup with us mr higgins i am sure you are tired if you've been out much this wet relaxing day margaret my dear can't you hasten tea margaret could only hasten tea by taking the preparation of it into her own hands and so offending dixon who was emerging out of her sorrow for her late mistress into a very touchy irritable state but martha like all who came in contact with margaret even dixon herself in the long run felt it a pleasure and an honour to forward any of her wishes and her readiness and margaret's sweet forbearance soon made dixon ashamed of herself why master and you must always be asking the lower classes upstairs since we came to milton i cannot understand folk at helstone were never brought higher than the kitchen and i've let one or two of em know before now that they might think it an honour to even be there higgins found it easier to unburden himself to one than to two after margaret left the room he went to the door and assured himself that it was shut then he came and stood close to mr hale master said he you'd not guess easy what i've been a trampin after to-day special if you'll remember my manner o talk yesterday i've been a seekin work i have said he i said to myself i'd keep a civil tongue in my head that who would say what em would i'd set my teeth into my tongue sooner nor speak in haste 
for that man's sake you understand jerking his thumb back in some unknown direction no i don't said mr hale seeing he waited for some kind of assent and completely bewildered as to who that man could be that chop as lies there he said with another jerk him as went and drownded himself poor chap i did na think he'd got it in him to lie still and let the water creep o'er him till he died voucher you know yes i know now said mr hale go back to what you were saying you'd not speak in haste for his sake not yet for his sake for where he is and what e'er he'll ne'er know other clemmen or cold again but for the wife's sake and the bits of childer god bless you said mr hale starting up then calming down he said breathlessly what do you mean tell me out i have told you said higgins a little surprised at mr hale's agitation i would nay ask for work for myself but them's left as a charge on me i reckon i would hae guided boucher to a better end but i set him off o the road and so i mun answer for him mr hale got hold of higgins's hand and shook it heartily without speaking higgins looked awkward and ashamed there there master there's near a man to call a man amongst us but what would do the same ay and better too for believe me i's ne'er got a stroke o work nor yet a sight of any for all i tell it hamper that let alone his pledge which i would not sign no i could nay not e'en for this he'd ne'er hay such a worker on his mill as i would be he'd hay none o me nor more would none o the others i am a poor black feckless sheep children may clem for aught i can do unless parson yo'd help me help you how i would do anything but what can i do miss there for margaret had re-entered the room and stood silent listening has often talked grand o the south and the ways down there now i don't know how far off it is but i've been thinking if i could get em down there where food is cheap and wages good and all the folk rich and poor master and man friendly like yo could maybe help me to work i'm not forty-five and i've a deal of strength in me maister but what kind of work could you do my man well i reckon i could spade a bit and for that said margaret stepping forwards for anything you could do higgins with the best will in the world you would maybe get nine shillings a week maybe ten at the outside food is much the same as here except that you might have a little garden the children could work at that said he i'm sick o milton anyways and milton is sick o me you must not go to the south said margaret for all that you could not stand it you would have to be out all weathers it would kill you with rheumatism the mere bodily work at your time of life would break you down the fare is far different to what you've been accustomed to i's not particular about my meat said he as if offended but you've reckoned on having butcher's meat once a day if you're in work pay for that out of your ten shillings and keep those poor children if you can i owe it to you since it's my way of talking that has set you off on this idea to put it all clear before you you would not bear the dullness of the life you don't know what it is 
it would eat you away like rust those that have lived there all their lives are used to soaking in the stagnant waters they labor on from day to day in the great solitude of steaming fields never speaking or lifting up their poor bent downcast heads the hard spade work robs their brain of life the sameness of their toil deadens their imagination they don't care to meet to talk over thoughts and speculations even of the weakest wildest kind after their work is done they go home brutishly tired poor creatures caring for nothing but food and rest you could not stir them up into any companionship which you get in a town as plentiful as the air you breathe whether it be good or bad and that i don't know but i do know that of all men you are not one to bear a life among such laborers what would be peace to them would be eternal fretting to you think no more of it nicholas i beg besides you could never pay to get mother and children all there that's one good thing i've reckoned for that one house mun do for a say and the furniture o t'other would go a good way and men there mun have their families to keep mappin six or seven childer god help em said he more convinced by his own presentation of the facts than by all margaret had said and suddenly renouncing the idea which had but recently formed itself in a brain worn out by the day's fatigue and anxiety god help em north and south have each gotten their own troubles if work's sure and steady there labor's paid at starvation prices while here we're in rucks o' money coming in one quarter and ne'er a farthin the next for sure the world is in a confusion that passes me or any other man to understand it needs fettlin and who's to fettle it if it's as yon folks say and there's naught but what we see mr hale was busy cutting bread and butter margaret was glad of this for she saw that higgins was better left to himself that if her father began to speak ever so mildly on the subject of higgins's thoughts the latter would consider himself challenged to an argument and would feel himself bound to maintain his own ground she and her father kept up an indifferent conversation until higgins scarcely aware whether he ate or not had made a very substantial meal then he put his chair away from the table and tried to take an interest in what they were saying but it was of no use and he fell back into a dreamy gloom suddenly margaret said she had been thinking of it for some time but the words had stuck in her throat higgins have you been to marlborough mills to seek for work thornton's asked he ay i've been at thornton's and what did he say such a chap as me is not like to see the master the o'erlooker bid me go and be damned i wish you had seen mr thornton said mr hale he might not have given you work but he would not have used such language as to the language i'm really used to it it dunnot matter to me i'm not nesh myself when i'm put out it were the fact that i were nay wanted theer no more nor any other place as i minded but i wish you had seen mr thornton replied margaret would you go again it's a good deal to ask i know but would you go to-morrow and try him i should be so glad if you would i'm afraid it would be of no use said mr hale in a low voice it would be better to let me speak to him margaret still looked at higgins for his answer those grave soft eyes of hers were difficult to resist he gave a great sigh it would tax my pride above a bit 
if it were for myself. I could stand a deal o' clemming first. I'd sooner knock him down than ask a favour from him. I'd a deal sooner be flogged myself. But you're not a common wench, axing your pardon, nor yet have your common ways about you. I'll e'en make a wry face, and go at it to-morrow. Dunna you think that he'll do it? That man has it in him to be burnt at the stake afore he'll give in. I do it for your sake, Miss Hale, and it's the first time in my life as e'er I give way to a woman. Neither my wife nor Bess could e'er say that much again me. All the more do I thank you, said Margaret, smiling. Though I don't believe you, I believe you have just given way to wife and daughter as much as most men. And as to Mr. Thornton, said Mr. Hale, I'll give you a note to him, which, I think I may venture to say, will ensure you a hearing. I thank you kindly, sir, but I'd as leaf stand on my own bottom. I don't stomach the notion of having favour curried for me, by one who doesn't know the ins and outs of the quarrel. Meddling twixt master and man is like meddling twixt husband and wife than aught else. It takes a deal of wisdom for to do only good. I'll stand guard at the lodge door. I'll stand there for six in the morning till I get speech on him. But I'd liefer sweep the streets, if paupers had nay got hold on that work. Then you hope, miss. There'll be more chance of getting milk out of a flint. I wish you a very good night, and many thanks to you. You'll find your shoes by the kitchen fire. I took them there to dry, said Margaret. He turned round and looked at her steadily, and then he brushed his lean hand across his eyes and went away. How proud that man is, said her father, who was a little annoyed at the manner in which Higgins had declined his intercession with Mr. Thornton. He is, said Margaret, but what grand makings of a man there are in him, pride and all. It's amusing to see how he evidently respects the part in Mr. Thornton's character, which is like his own. There's granite in all these northern people, Papa, is there not? There was none in poor Boucher, I'm afraid. None in his wife, either. I should guess from their tones that they had Irish blood in them. I wonder what success he'll have to-morrow, if he and Mr. Thornton speak out together as man to man. If Higgins would forget that Mr. Thornton was a master, and speak to him as he does to us, and if Mr. Thornton would be patient enough to listen to him with his human heart, not with his master's ears. "'You are getting to do Mr. Thornton justice at last, Margaret,' said her father, pinching her ear. Margaret had a strange choking in her heart, which made her unable to answer. "'Oh,' thought she, "'I wish I were a man, that I could go and force him to express his disapprobation, and tell him honestly that I knew I deserved it. It seems hard to lose him as a friend, just when I had begun to feel his value. How tender he was with dear Mamma." If it were only for her sake, I wish he would come, and then at least I should know how much I was abased in his eyes. End of chapter 37、Chapter、38 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 38 Promises Fulfilled. Then proudly, proudly up she rose, though the tear was in her e. Whate'er ye say, think what ye may, ye's get nay word frae me. 
Scotch ballad. It was not merely that Margaret was known to Mr. Thornton to have spoken falsely, though she imagined that for this reason only she was so turned in his opinion, but that this falsehood of hers bore a distinct reference in his mind to some other lover. He could not forget the fond and earnest look that had passed between her and some other man, the attitude of familiar confidence, if not of positive endearment. The thought of this perpetually stung him. It was a picture before his eyes, wherever he went, and whatever he was doing. In addition to this, and he ground his teeth as he remembered it, was the hour, dusky twilight, the place, so far from home, and comparatively unfrequented. His nobler self had said at first that all this last might be accidental, innocent, justifiable, but once allow her right to love and be beloved. And had he any reason to deny her right? Had not her words been severely explicit when she cast his love away from her? She might easily have been beguiled into a longer walk, on to a later hour than she had anticipated. But that falsehood, which showed a fatal consciousness of something wrong, and to be concealed, which was unlike her. He did her that justice, though all the time it would have been a relief to believe her utterly unworthy of his esteem. It was this that made the misery, that he passionately loved her, and thought her, even with all her faults, more lovely and more excellent than any other woman, yet he deemed her so attached to some other man, so led away by her affection for him as to violate her truthful nature, the very falsehood that stained her was a proof how blindly she loved another. This dark, slight, elegant, handsome man, while he himself was rough and stern and strongly made. He lashed himself into an agony of fierce jealousy. He thought of that look, that attitude. How he would have laid his life at her feet for such tender glances, such fond detention. He mocked at himself, for having valued the mechanical way in which she had protected him from the fury of the mob. Now he had seen how soft and bewitching she looked when with a man she really loved. He remembered, point by point, the sharpness of her words. There was not a man in all that crowd for whom she would not have done as much, far more readily than for him. He shared with the mob, in her desire of averting bloodshed from them, but this man— this hidden lover, shared with nobody. He had looks, words, hand-cleavings, lies, concealment, all to himself. Mr. Thornton was conscious that he had never been so irritable as he was now, in all his long life. He felt inclined to give a short, abrupt answer, more like a bark than a speech, to everyone that asked him a question. And this consciousness hurt his pride, he had always piqued himself on his self-control, and control himself he would. So the matter was subdued to a quiet deliberation, but the matter was even harder and sterner than common. He was more than usually silent at home, employing his evenings in a continual pace backwards and forwards, which would have annoyed his mother exceedingly if it had been practiced by any one else, and did not tend to promote any forbearance on her part even to this beloved son. Can you stop? Can you sit down for a moment? I have something to say to you, if you would give up that everlasting walk, walk, walk. 
he sat down instantly, on a chair against the wall. "'I want to speak to you about Betsy. She says she must leave us, that her lover's death has so affected her spirits she can't give her heart to her work.' "'Very well. I suppose other cooks are to be met with.' "'That's so like a man. It's not merely the cooking. It's that she knows all the ways of the house. Besides, she tells me something about your friend Miss Hale.' "'Miss Hale is no friend of mine. Mr. Hale is my friend.' "'I am glad to hear you say so, for if she had been your friend, what Betsy says would have annoyed you.' "'Let me hear it,' said he, with the extreme quietness of manner he had been assuming for the last few days. "'Betsy says that on the night on which her lover—I forget his name, for she always calls him he—Leonard's. The night on which Leonard's was last seen at the station, when he was last seen on duty, in fact, Miss Hale was there, walking about with a young man who, Betsy believes, killed Leonard's by some blow or push. Leonard's was not killed by any blow or push. How do you know? Because I distinctly put the question to the surgeon of the infirmary. He told me that there was an internal disease of long standing caused by Leonard's habit of drinking to excess, that the fact of his becoming rapidly worse while in a state of intoxication settled the question as to whether the last fatal attack was caused by excess of drinking or the fall. The fall? What fall? Caused by the blow or push of which Betsy speaks. Then there was a blow or push? I believe so. And who did it? As there was no inquest, in consequence of the doctor's opinion, I cannot tell you. But Miss Hale was there. No answer. And with a young man. Still no answer. At last he said, I tell you, mother, that there was no inquest, no inquiry, no judicial inquiry, I mean. Betsy says that Wolmer, some man she knows, who's in a grocer's shop out at Crampton, can swear that Miss Hale was at the station at that hour, walking backwards and forwards with a young man. I don't see what we have to do with that. Miss Hale is at liberty to please herself. I'm glad to hear you say so, said Mrs. Thornton, eagerly. It certainly signifies very little to us, not at all to you, after what has passed. But I—I I made a promise to Mrs. Hale— that I would not allow her daughter to go wrong without advising and remonstrating with her. I shall certainly let her know my opinion of such conduct. "'I do not see any harm in what she did that evening,' said Mr. Thornton, getting up and coming near to his mother. He stood by the chimney-piece, with his face turned away from the room. "'You would not have approved of Fanny's being seen out, after dark, in a rather lonely place, walking about with a young man.' I say nothing of the taste which could choose the time, when her mother lay unburied, for such a promenade. Should you have liked your sister to have been noticed by a grocer's assistant for doing so? In the first place, it is not many years since I myself was a draper's assistant. The mere circumstance of a grocer's assistant noticing any act does not alter the character of the act to me. And in the next place, I see a great deal of difference between Miss Hale and Fanny. I can imagine that the one may have weighty reasons, which may and ought to make her overlook any seeming impropriety in her conduct. 
I never knew Fanny to have weighty reasons for anything. Other people must guard her. I believe Miss Hale is a guardian to herself. A pretty character of your sister, indeed. Really, John, one would have thought Miss Hale had done enough to make you clear-sighted. She drew you on to an offer, by a bold display of pretended regard for you, to play you off against this very young man, I've no doubt. Her whole conduct is clear to me now. You believe he is her lover, I suppose. You agree to that? He turned round to his mother. His face was very grey and grim. Yes, mother, I do believe he is her lover. When he had spoken, he turned round again, and writhed himself about, like one in bodily pain. He leant his face against his hand. Then, before she could speak, he turned sharp again. Mother, he is her lover, whoever he is. But she may need help and womanly counsel. There may be difficulties or temptations which I don't know. I fear there are. I don't want to know what they are, but as you have ever been a good, I, and a tender mother to me, go to her, and gain her confidence, and tell her what is best to be done. I know that something is wrong, some dread, must be a terrible torture to her. "'For God's sake, John,' said his mother, now really shocked, "'what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you know?' He did not reply to her. "'John, I don't know what I shan't think unless you speak. You have no right to say what you have done against her.' "'Not against her, mother. I could not speak anything against her.' "'Well, you have no right to say what you have done, unless you say more. These half-expressions are what ruin a woman's character.' "'Her character? Mother, you do not dare!' He faced about and looked into her face with his flaming eyes. Then, drawing himself up into determined composure and dignity, he said, "'I will not say any more than this, which is neither more nor less than the simple truth, and I am sure you believe me.' I have good reason to believe that Miss Hale is in some strait and difficulty connected with an attachment which, of itself, from my knowledge of Miss Hale's character, is perfectly innocent and right. What my reason is, I refuse to tell. But let me never hear any one say a word against her, implying any more serious imputation than that she now needs the counsel of some kind and gentle woman. You promised Mrs. Hale to be that woman— no said mrs thornton i am happy to say i did not promise gentleness and kindness for i felt at the time it might be out of my power to render these to one of miss hale's character and disposition i promised counsel and advice such as i would give to my own daughter i shall speak to her as i would do to fanny if she had gone gallivanting with a young man in the dusk i shall speak with relation to the circumstances i know without being influenced either one way or another by the strong reasons which you will not confide to me. Then I shall have fulfilled my promise, and done my duty. "'She will never bear it,' said he, passionately. "'She will have to bear it, if I speak in her dead mother's name.' "'Well,' said he, breaking away, "'don't tell me any more about it. I cannot endure to think of it. It will be better that you should speak to her anyway.' than that she should not be spoken to at all. Oh, that look of love, 
continued he, between his teeth, as he bolted himself into his own private room, and that cursed lie, which showed some terrible shame in the background, to be kept from the light in which I thought she lived perpetually. Oh, Margaret, Margaret! Mother, how you have tortured me! Oh, Margaret, could you not have loved me? I am but uncouth and hard, but I would never have led you into any falsehood for me. The more Mrs. Thornton thought over what her son had said, in pleading for a merciful judgment for Margaret's indiscretion, the more bitterly she felt inclined towards her. She took a savage pleasure in the idea of speaking her mind to her, in the guise of fulfilment of a duty. She enjoyed the thought of showing herself untouched by the glamour, which she was well aware Margaret had the power of throwing over many people. She snorted scornfully over the picture of the beauty of her victim, her jet-black hair, her clear, smooth skin. Her lucid eyes would not help to save her one word of the just and stern reproach which Mrs. Thornton spent half the night in preparing to her mind. "'Is Miss Hale within?' She knew she was, for she had seen her at the window, and she had her feet inside the little hall before Martha had half answered the question. Margaret was sitting alone, writing to Edith, and giving her many particulars of her mother's last days. It was a softening employment, and she had to brush away the unbidden tears as Mrs. Thornton was announced. She was so gentle and ladylike in her mode of reception that her visitor was somewhat daunted, and it became impossible to utter the speech, so easy of arrangement with no one to address it to. Margaret's low, rich voice was softer than usual, her manner more gracious, because in her heart she was feeling very grateful to Mrs. Thornton for the courteous attention of her call. She exerted herself to find subjects of interest for conversation, praised Martha, the servant whom Mrs. Thornton had found for them, had asked Edith for a little Greek air about which she had spoken to Miss Thornton. Mrs. Thornton was fairly discomfited. Her sharp Damascus blade seemed out of place and useless among rose-leaves. She was silent, because she was trying to task herself up to her duty. At last, she stung herself into its performance by a suspicion which, in spite of all probability, she allowed to cross her mind, that all this sweetness was put on with a view of propitiating Mr. Thornton, that, somehow, the other attachment had fallen through, and that it suited Miss Hale's purpose to recall her rejected lover. Poor Margaret! There was perhaps so much truth in the suspicion as this, that Mrs. Thornton was the mother of one whose regard she valued, and feared to have lost, and this thought unconsciously added to her natural desire of pleasing one who was showing her kindness by her visit. Mrs. Thornton stood up to go, but yet she seemed to have something more to say. She cleared her throat and began. <clears throat> Miss Hale, I have a duty to perform. I promised your mother that, as far as my poor judgment went, I would not allow you to act in any way wrongly, or, she softened her speech down a little here, inadvertently, without remonstrating, at least without offering advice, whether you took it or not. Margaret stood before her, blushing like any culprit, with her eyes dilating as she gazed at Mrs. Thornton. She thought she had come to speak to her about the falsehood she had told, that Mr. Thornton had employed her to explain the danger she had exposed herself to, of being confuted in full court, and although her heart sank to think he had not rather chosen to come himself, and upbraid her, and receive her penitence, and restore her again to his good opinion, 
yet she was too much humbled not to bear any blame on this subject patiently and meekly. Mrs. Thornton went on. At first, when I heard from one of my servants that you had been seen walking about with a gentleman, so far from home as the outward station, at such a time of the evening, I could hardly believe it. But my son, I am sorry to say, confirmed her story. It was indiscreet, to say the least. Many a young woman has lost her character before now. Margaret's eyes flashed fire. This was a new idea. This was too insulting. If Mrs. Thornton had spoken to her about the lie she had told, well and good, she would have owned it and humiliated herself. But to interfere with her conduct, to speak of her character, she, Mrs. Thornton, a mere stranger, it was too impertinent. She would not answer her, not one word. Mrs. Thornton saw the battle-spirit in Margaret's eyes, and it called up her combativeness also. For your mother's sake, I have thought it right to warn you against such improprieties. They must degrade you in the long run in the estimation of the world, even if, in fact, they do not lead you to positive harm. For my mother's sake, said Margaret, in a tearful voice, I will bear much, but I cannot bear everything. She never meant me to be exposed to insult, I am sure. Insult, Miss Hale? Yes, madam, said Margaret, more steadily. It is insult. What do you know of me that should lead you to suspect? Oh, she said, breaking down and covering her face with her hands. I know now. Mr. Thornton has told you. No, Miss Hale, said Mrs. Thornton, her truthfulness causing her to arrest the confession Margaret was on the point of making, though her curiosity was itching to hear it. Stop. Mr. Thornton has told me nothing. You do not know my son. You are not worthy to know him. He said this. Listen, young lady, that you may understand, if you can, what sort of a man you rejected. This Milton manufacturer, his great tender heart scorned as it was scorned, said to me only last night, Go to her. I have good reason to know that she is in some strait, arising out of some attachment, and she needs womanly counsel. I believe those were his very words. Farther than that, beyond admitting the fact of your being at the outward station with a gentleman, on the evening of the twenty-sixth, he has said nothing, not one word against you. If he has knowledge of anything which should make you sob, he keeps it to himself. Margaret's face was still hidden in her hands, the fingers of which were wet with tears. Mrs. Thornton was a little mollified. Come, Miss Hale, there may be circumstances, I'll allow, that, if explained, may take off from the seeming impropriety. Still no answer. Margaret was considering what to say. She wished to stand well with Mrs. Thornton, and yet she could not, might not, give any explanation. Mrs. Thornton grew impatient. I shall be sorry to break off an acquaintance, but for Fanny's sake. As I told my son, if Fanny had done so we should consider it a great disgrace, and Fanny might be led away. I can give you no explanation, said Margaret, in a low voice. I have done wrong but not in the way you think or know about. I think Mr. Thornton judges me more mercifully than you. 
she had hard work to keep herself from choking with her tears. But, I believe, madam, you do mean rightly. Thank you, said Mrs. Thornton, drawing herself up. I was not aware that my meaning was doubted. It is the last time I shall interfere. I was unwilling to consent to do it, when your mother asked me. I had not approved of my son's attachment to you, while I only suspected it. You did not appear to me worthy of him. But when you compromised yourself as you did at the time of the riot, and exposed yourself to the comments of servants and workpeople, I felt it was no longer right to set myself against my son's wish of proposing to you, a wish, by the way, which he had always denied entertaining until the day of the riot. Margaret winced, and drew in her breath with a long, hissing sound, of which, however, Mrs. Thornton took no notice. He came. You had apparently changed your mind. I told my son yesterday that I thought it possible, short as was the interval, you might have heard or learnt something of this other lover. "'What must you think of me, madam?' asked Margaret, throwing her head back with proud disdain till her throat curved outwards like a swan's. "'You can say nothing more, Mrs. Thornton. I decline every attempt to justify myself for anything. You must allow me to leave the room.' And she swept out of it with the noiseless grace of an offended princess. Mrs. Thornton had quite enough of natural humour to make her feel the ludicrousness of the position in which she was left. There was nothing for it but to show herself out. She was not particularly annoyed at Margaret's way of behaving. She did not care enough for her for that. She had taken Mrs. Thornton's remonstrance to the full as keenly to heart as that lady expected, and Margaret's passion at once mollified her visitor, far more than any silence or reserve could have done. It showed the effect of her words. "'My young lady,' thought Mrs. Thornton to herself, "'you've a pretty good temper of your own. If John and you had come together, he would have had to keep a tight hand over you, to make you know your place. But I don't think you will go a-walking again with your bow, at such an hour of the day, in a hurry. You've too much pride and spirit in you for that. I like to see a girl fly out at the notion of being talked about. It shows they're neither giddy nor bold by nature. As for that girl, she might be bold, but she'd never be giddy. I'll do her that justice. Now as to Fanny, she'd be giddy and not bold. She's no courage in her, poor thing. Mr. Thornton was not spending the morning so satisfactorily as his mother. She, at any rate, was fulfilling her determined purpose. He was trying to understand where he stood, what damage the strike had done him, a good deal of his capital was locked up in new and expensive machinery, and he had also bought cotton largely, with a view to some great orders which he had in hand. The strike had thrown him terribly behindhand, as to the completion of these orders. Even with his own accustomed and skilled workpeople, he would have had some difficulty in fulfilling his engagements. As it was, the incompetence of the Irish hands, who had to be trained to their work, at a time requiring unusual activity, was a daily annoyance. It was not a favourable hour for Higgins to make his request, but he had promised Margaret to do so at any cost. So, though every moment added to his repugnance, his pride, and his sullenness of temper, he stood leaning against the dead wall, hour after hour, first on one leg, then on the other. At last the latch was sharply lifted, and out came Mr. Thornton. 
I want for to speak to you, sir. Can't stay now, my man. I'm too late as it is. Well, sir, I reckon I can wait till you come back. Mr. Thornton was halfway down the street. Higgins sighed, but it was no use. To catch him in the street was his only chance of seeing the maester. If he had rung at the lodge bell, or even gone up to the house to ask for him, he would have been referred to the overlooker. So he stood still again, vouchsafing no answer, but a short nod of recognition to the few men who knew and spoke to him, as the crowd drove out of the mill-yard at dinner-time, and scowling with all his might at the Irish knobsticks who had just been imported. At last Mr. Thornton returned. "'What, you there still?' "'Aye, sir. I mun speak to you.' "'Come in here, then. "'Stay. We'll go across the yard. "'The men are not come back, and we shall have it to ourselves. "'These good people, I see, are at dinner,' he said, "'closing the door of the porter's lodge. "'He stopped to speak to the overlooker. "'The latter said in a low tone, "'I suppose you know, sir, that man is Higgins, "'one of the leaders of the Union, "'he that made that speech in Hertzfield.' "'No, I didn't,' said Mr. Thornton, looking round sharply at his follower. Higgins was known to him by name as a turbulent spirit. "'Come along,' said he, and his tone was rougher than before. "'It is men such as this,' he thought, "'who interrupt commerce and injure the very town they live in, mere demagogues, lovers of power, at whatever cost to others.' "'Well, sir, what do you want with me?' said Mr. Thornton, facing round at him, as soon as they were in the counting-house of the mill." "'My name is Higgins.' "'I know that,' broke in Mr. Thornton. "'What do you want, Mr. Higgins? That's the question.' "'I want work.' "'Work! You're a pretty chap to come asking me for work. You don't want impudence, that's very clear.' "'I've gotten enemies and backbiters, like my betters. But I ne'er heard o' oh, ony o' them calling me o'er-modest,' said Higgins. His blood was a little roused by Mr. Thornton's manner, more than by his words. Mr. Thornton saw a letter addressed to himself on the table. He took it up and read it through. At the end he looked up and said, "'What are you waiting for?' "'An answer to the question I asked.' "'I gave it you before. Don't waste any more of your time.' "'You made a remark, sir, on my impudence.' but I were taught that it was manners to say either yes or no when I were axed a civil question. I should be thankful to you if you'd give me work. Hamper will speak to my being a good hand. I've a notion you'd better not send me to Hamper to ask for a character, my man. I might hear more than you'd like. I'd take the risk. Worst they could say of me is that I did what I thought best, even to my own wrong. You'd better go and try them, then, and see whether they'll give you work. I've turned off upwards of a hundred of my best hands, for no other fault than following you and such as you. And do you think I'll take you on? I might as well put a firebrand into the midst of the cotton waste. Higgins turned away. Then the recollection of Boucher came over him, and he faced round with the greatest concession he could persuade himself to make. I promise you, maester, I'd not speak a word as could do harm. If so be, you did right by us. And I'd promise more. I'd promise that when I seed you go wrong, and acting unfair, I'd speak to you in private first. And that would be a fair warning. If you and I did na agree in our opinion o' your conduct, you might turn me off at an hour's notice. 
Upon my word, you don't think small beer of yourself. Hamper has had a loss of you. How came he to let you and your wisdom go? Well, we parted with mutual dissatisfaction. I wouldn't gie the pledge they were asking for, and they wouldn't have me at no rate, so I'm free to make another engagement. And as I said before, though I shouldn't a say it, I'm a good hand, maister, and a steady man, specially when I can keep for drink, and that I shall do now, if I ne'er did afore. That you may have more money laid up for another strike, I suppose? No, I'd be thankful if I was free to do that. It's for to keep the widow and children of a man who was drove mad by them knobsticks o' yon, put out of his place by a paddy that did nay know weft for warp. Well, you'd better turn to something else, if you've any such good intention in your head. I shouldn't advise you to stay in Milton. You're too well known here. If it were summer, said Higgins, I'd take to Paddy's work, and go as a navvy, or haymaken, or summit, and ne'er see Milton again. But it's winter, and the childer will clem. A pretty navvy you'd make. Why, you couldn't do half a day's work at digging against an Irishman. I'd only charge half a day for the twelve hours, if I could only do half a day's work in the time. You're not knowing of any place where they would give me a trial, away for the mills, if I'm such a firebrand. I'll take any wage they thought I was worth, for the sake of those childer. Don't you see what you would be? You'd be a knobstick. You'd be taking less wages than the other labourers, all for the sake of another man's children. Think how you'd abuse any poor fellow who was willing to take what he could get to keep his own children. You and your union would soon be down upon him. No, no, if it's only for the recollection of the way in which you've used the poor knobsticks before now, I say no to your question. I'll not give you work. I won't say I don't believe your pretext for coming and asking for work. I know nothing about it. It may be true, or it may not. It's a very unlikely story, at any rate. Let me pass. I'll not give you work. There's your answer. I hear, sir. I would nay had troubled you, but I were bid to come, by one as seemed to think you'd gotten some soft place in your heart. Who were mistook, and I were misled. But I'm not the first man as is misled by a woman. Tell her to mind her own business the next time, instead of taking up your time and mine too. I believe women are at the very bottom of every plague in this world. Be off with you. I'm obliged to you for your kindness, maister, and most of all for your civil way of saying good-bye. Mr. Thornton did not deign a reply, but, looking out the window a minute after, he was struck with the lean, bent figure going out of the yard. The heavy walk was in strange contrast with the resolute, clear determination of the man to speak to him. He crossed to the porter's lodge. How long has that man Higgins been waiting to speak to me? He was outside the gate before eight o'clock, sir. I think he's been there ever since. And it is now. Just one, sir. Five hours, thought Mr. Thornton. It's a long time for a man to wait, doing nothing but first hoping, and then fearing. End of chapter 38
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter thirty nine. Making friends. Nay, I have done. You get no more of me. And I am glad, yea, glad with all my heart, that thus so clearly I myself am free. Drayton. Margaret shut herself up in her own room, after she had quitted Mrs. Thornton. She began to walk backwards and forwards, in her old habitual way of showing agitation, but then, remembering, that in that slightly built house every step was heard from one room to another, she sat down until she heard Mrs. Thornton go safely out of the house. She forced herself to recollect all the conversation that had passed between them, speech by speech, she compelled her memory to go through with it. At the end she rose up, and said to herself in a melancholy tone, At any rate, her words do not touch me. They fall off from me, for I am innocent of all the motives she attributes to me. But still, it is hard to think that any one, any woman, can believe all this of another so easily. It is hard and sad. Where I have done wrong, she does not accuse me. She does not know. He never told her. I might have known he would not. She lifted up her head, as if she took pride in any delicacy of feeling which Mr. Thornton had shown. Then, as a new thought came across her, she pressed her hands tightly together. He, too, must take poor Frederick for some lover. She blushed as the word passed through her mind. I see it now. It is not merely that he knows of my falsehood, but he believes that someone else cares for me, and that I... Oh, dear! Oh, dear, what shall I do? What do I mean? Why do I care what he thinks, beyond the mere loss of his good opinion as regards to my telling the truth or not? I cannot tell, but I am very miserable. Oh, how unhappy this last year has been! I have passed out of childhood into old age. I have had no youth, no womanhood. The hopes of womanhood have closed for me, for I shall never marry, and I anticipate cares and sorrows, just as if I were an old woman, and with the same fearful spirit. I am weary of this continual call upon me for strength. I could bear up for Papa, because that is a natural, pious duty. And I think I could bear up against... At any rate, I could have the energy to resent Mrs. Thornton's unjust, impertinent suspicions. But it is hard to feel how completely he must misunderstand me. What has happened to make me so morbid today? I do not know. I only know I cannot help it. I must give way sometimes. No, I will not, though, said she, springing to her feet. I will not. I will not think of myself and my own position. I won't examine into my own feelings. It would be of no use now. Sometime, if I live to be an old woman, I may sit over the fire and— looking into the embers, see the life that might have been. All this time she was hastily putting on her things to go out, only stopping from time to time to wipe her eyes, 
with an impatience of gesture at the tears that would come, in spite of all her bravery. I dare say, there's many a woman makes as sad a mistake as I have done, and only finds it out too late. And how proudly and impertinently I spoke to him that day. But I did not know then. It has come upon me little by little, and I don't know where it began. Now I won't give way. I shall find it difficult to behave in the same way to him, with this miserable consciousness upon me. But I will be very calm and very quiet, and say very little. But, to be sure, I may not see him. He keeps out of our way, evidently. That would be worse than all. And yet no wonder that he avoids me, believing what he must about me. She went out, going rapidly towards the country, and trying to drown reflections by swiftness of motion. As she stood on the doorstep, at her return, her father came up. "'Good girl,' said he. "'You've been to Mrs. Boucher's. I was just meaning to go there, if I had time, before dinner.' "'No, Papa, I have not,' said Margaret, reddening. "'I never thought about her. But I will go directly after dinner.' I will go while you are taking your nap. Accordingly, Margaret went. Mrs. Boucher was very ill, really ill, not merely ailing. The kind and sensible neighbor, who had come in the other day, seemed to have taken charge of everything. Some of the children were gone to the neighbors. Mary Higgins had come for the three youngest at dinner-time, and since then Nicholas had gone for the doctor. He had not come as yet. Mrs. Boucher was dying and there was nothing to do but to wait. Margaret thought that she should like to know his opinion, and that she could not do better than go and see the Higginses in the meantime. She might then possibly hear whether Nicholas had been able to make his application to Mr. Thornton. She found Nicholas busily engaged in making a penny spin on the dresser, for the amusement of the three children, who were clinging to him in a fearless manner. He, as well as they, were smiling at a good long spin, and Margaret thought, that the happy look of interest in his occupation was a good sign. When the penny stopped spinning, Lyle Johnny began to cry. "'Come to me,' said Margaret, taking him off the dresser and holding him in her arms. She held her watch to his ear, while she asked Nicholas if he had seen Mr. Thornton. The look on his face changed instantly. "'Aye,' said he, "'I've seen and heard too much on him.' "'He refused you, then?' said Margaret, sorrowfully. "'To be sure. I knew he'd do it all along. It's no good expecting Marcy at the hands of them maesters. You're a stranger and a foreigner, and aren't like to know their ways. But I knowed it.' "'I am sorry I asked you. Was he angry? He did not speak to you as Hamper did, did he?' "'He weren't o'er civil,' said Nicholas, spinning the penny again, as much for his own amusement as for that of the children. "'Never yo fret. I'm only where I was. I'll go on tramp to-morrow. I gave him as good as I got. I telled him that I'd not that good opinion on him, that I'd hey come a second time o' my cell. But yo'd advised me for to come, and I were beholden to yo.' "'You told him I sent you?' "'I don't know if I caid yo by your name. I don't think I did. I said—' A woman who knew no better had advised me for to come, and see if there was a soft place in his heart. 
and he asked margaret said i were to tell ye to mind your own business that's the longest spin yet my lads and them's civil words to what he used to me but ne'er mind we're but where we was and i'll break stones o the road afore i let these little uns clem margaret put the struggling johnny out of her arms back into his former place on the dresser i am sorry i asked you to go to mr thornton's i am disappointed in him there was a slight noise behind her both she and nicholas turned round at the same moment and there stood mr thornton with a look of displeased surprise upon his face obeying her swift impulse margaret passed out before him not saying a word only bowing low to hide the sudden paleness that she felt had come over her face he bent equally low in return and then closed the door after her as she hurried to mrs boucher's she heard the clang and it seemed to fill up the measure of her mortification he too was annoyed to find her there he had tenderness in his heart a soft place as nicholas higgins called it but he had some pride in concealing it he kept it very sacred and safe and was jealous of every circumstance that tried to gain admission but if he dreaded exposure of his tenderness he was equally desirous that all men should recognize his justice and he felt that he had been unjust in giving so scornful a hearing to any one who had waited with humble patience for five hours to speak to him that the man had spoken saucily to him when he had the opportunity was nothing to mr thornton he rather liked him for it and he was conscious of his own irritability of temper at the time which probably made them both quits it was the five hours of waiting that struck mr thornton he had not five hours to spare himself but one hour two hours of his hard penetrating intellectual as well as bodily labor did he give up to going about collecting evidence as to the truth of higgins's story the nature of his character the tenor of his life he tried not to be but was convinced that all that higgins had said was true and then the conviction went in as if by some spell and touched the latent tenderness of his heart the patience of the man the simple generosity of the motive for he had learnt about the quarrel between boucher and higgins made him forget entirely the mere reasonings of justice and overleap them by a diviner instinct he came to tell higgins he would give him work and he was more annoyed to find margaret there than by hearing her last words for then he understood that she was the woman who had urged higgins to come to him and he dreaded the admission of any thought of her as a motive to what he was doing solely because it was right so that was the lady you spoke of as a woman he said indignantly to higgins you might have told me who she was and then maybe you'd ha spoken of her more civil than you did you'd getten a mother who might ha kept your tongue in check when you were talking o women being at the root o all the plagues of course you told that to miss hale of course i did leastways i reckon i did i telled her she weren't to meddle again in aught that concerned you whose children are those yours mr thornton had a pretty good notion whose they were from what he had heard but he felt awkward in turning the conversation round from this unpromising beginning they're not mine and they are mine they are the children you spoke of to me this morning when you said replied higgins turning round with ill-smothered fierceness 
that my story might be true or might not, Bert were a very unlikely one. Maester, I've not forgotten. Mr. Thornton was silent for a moment. Then he said, No more have I. I remember what I said. I spoke to you about those children in a way I had no business to do. I did not believe you. I could not have taken care of another man's children myself, if he acted toward me as I hear Boucher did towards you. But I know now that you spoke the truth. I beg your pardon. Higgins did not turn round, or immediately respond to this. But when he did speak, it was in a softened tone, although the words were gruff enough. "'You've no business to go prying into what happened between Boucher and me. He's dead, and I'm sorry. That's enough.' "'So it is. Will you take work with me? That's what I came to ask.' Higgins' obstinacy wavered, recovered strength, and stood firm. He would not speak. Mr. Thornton would not ask again. Higgins's eye fell on the children. "'You have called me impudent, and a liar, and a mischief-maker, and you might hae say with some truth, as I were now and then given to drink. And I hae called you a tyrant, and an old bulldog, and a hard, cruel master. That's where it stands. But for the childer. Maester, do you think we can air get on together?' "'Well,' said Mr. Thornton, half laughing, "'it was not my proposal that we should go together. "'But there's one comfort on your own showing. "'We neither of us can think much worse of the other than we do now.' "'That's true,' said Higgins, reflectively. "'I've been thinking, ever since I saw you, "'what a marcy it were, you did nay take me on, "'for that I ne'er saw a man whom I could less abide. "'But that's maybe been a hasty judgment.' and work's work to such as me. So, maester, I'll come, and what's more, I thank you. And that's a deal for me, he said, more frankly, suddenly turning round and facing Mr. Thornton fully for the first time. And this is a deal from me, said Mr. Thornton, giving Higgins's hand a good grip. Now mind you, come sharp to your time, continued he, resuming the master. I'll have no laggards at my mill." What fines we have, we keep pretty sharply. And the first time I catch you making mischief, off you go. So now you know where you are. You spoke of my wisdom this morning. I reckon I may bring it with me, or would you rather have me bout my brains? Bout your brains, if you use them for meddling with my business. With your brains, if you can keep them to your own. I shall need a deal of brains to settle where my business ends and yours begins. Your business has not begun yet, and mine stands still for me. So good afternoon. Just before Mr. Thornton came up to Mrs. Boucher's door, Margaret came out of it. She did not see him, and he followed her for several yards, admiring her light and easy walk, and her tall and graceful figure. But, suddenly, this simple emotion of pleasure was tainted, poisoned by jealousy. He wished to overtake her, and speak to her, to see how she would receive him, now she must know he was aware of some other attachment. He wished, too, but of this wish he was rather ashamed, that she should know that he had justified her wisdom in sending Higgins to him to ask for work, and had repented him of this morning's decision. He came up to her. She started. 
allow me to say miss hale that you were rather premature in expressing your disappointment i have taken higgins on i am glad of it said she coldly he tells me he repeated to you what i said this morning about mr thornton hesitated margaret took it up about women not meddling you had a perfect right to express your opinion which is a very correct one i have no doubt but she went on a little more eagerly higgins did not tell you quite the exact truth the word truth reminded her of her own untruth and she stopped short feeling exceedingly uncomfortable mr thornton at first was puzzled to account for her silence and then he remembered the lie she had told and all that was foregone the exact truth said he very few people do speak the exact truth i have given up hoping for it miss hale have you no explanation to give me you must perceive what i cannot but think margaret was silent she was wondering whether an explanation of any kind would be consistent with her loyalty to frederick nay said he i will ask no farther i may be putting temptation in your way at present believe me your secret is safe with me but you run great risks allow me to say in being so indiscreet i am now only speaking as a friend of your father's if i had any other thought or hope of course that is at an end i am quite disinterested i am aware of that said margaret forcing herself to speak in an indifferent careless way i am aware of what i must appear to you but the secret is another person's and i cannot explain it without doing him harm i have not the slightest wish to pry into the gentleman's secrets he said with growing anger my own interest in you is simply that of a friend you may not believe me miss hale but it is in spite of the persecution i am afraid i threatened you with at one time but that is all given up all passed away you believe me miss hale yes said margaret quietly and sadly then really i don't see any occasion for us to go on walking together i thought perhaps you might have had something to say but i see that we are nothing to each other if you are quite convinced that any foolish passion on my part is entirely over i will wish you a good afternoon he walked off very hastily what can he mean thought margaret what could he mean by speaking so as if i were always thinking that he cared for me when i know he does not he cannot his mother will have said all those cruel things about me to him but i won't care for him i surely am mistress enough of my own to control this wild strange miserable feeling which tempted me even to betray my own dear frederick so that i might regain his good opinion the good opinion of a man who takes such pains to tell me that i am nothing to him come poor little heart be cheery and brave we'll be a good deal to one another if we are thrown off and left desolate her father was almost startled by her merriment this afternoon she talked incessantly and forced her natural humour to an unusual pitch and if there was a tinge of bitterness in much of what she said if her accounts of the old harley street set were a little sarcastic 
her father could not bear to check her, as he would have done at another time, for he was glad to see her shake off her cares. In the middle of the evening she was called down to speak to Mary Higgins, and when she came back Mr. Hale imagined that he saw traces of tears on her cheeks. But that could not be, for she brought good news, that Higgins had got work at Mr. Thornton's mill. Her spirits were damped, at any rate, and she found it very difficult to go on talking at all, much more in the wild way that she had done. For some days her spirits varied strangely, and her father was beginning to be anxious about her, when news arrived from one or two quarters that promised some change and variety for her. Mr. Hale received a letter from Mr. Bell, in which that gentleman volunteered a visit to them, and Mr. Hale imagined that the promised society of his old Oxford friend would give as agreeable a turn to Margaret's ideas as it did to his own. Margaret tried to take an interest in what pleased her father, but she was too languid to care about any Mr. Bell, even though he were twenty times her godfather. She was more roused by a letter from Edith, full of sympathy about her aunt's death, full of details about herself, her husband, and child, and at the end saying that as the climate did not suit the baby, and as Mrs. Shaw was talking of returning to England, she thought it probable that Captain Lennox might sell out, and that they might all go and live again in the old Harley Street house, which, however, would seem very incomplete without Margaret. Margaret yearned after that old house, and the placid tranquillity of that old, well-ordered, monotonous life. She had found it occasionally tiresome while it lasted, but since then she had been buffeted about, and felt so exhausted by this recent struggle with herself that she thought that even stagnation would be a rest and a refreshment. So she began to look towards a long visit to the Lennoxes on their return to England, as to a point—no, not of hope— but of leisure, in which she could regain her power and command over herself. At present it seemed to her as if all subjects tended towards Mr. Thornton, as if she could not forget him with all her endeavours. If she went to see the Higginses, she heard of him there. Her father had resumed their readings together, and quoted his opinions perpetually. Even Mr. Bell's visit brought his tenant's name upon the tapis, for he wrote word that he believed he must be occupied some great part of his time with Mr. Thornton, as a new lease was in preparation, and the terms of it must be agreed upon. End of chapter 39